Greetings and what's good, everybody. Welcome to the Christian Soldier Podcast, a social justice, faith-minded podcast featuring three friends from across the diaspora exploring life at the intersection of race, ethnicity, gender, culture, politics, and basically living while Black. And along with my co-hosts, Andre Salmador and Justina Kenyi, we are just three POC in the cornfield, living life, loving Jesus, and fighting the good fight in these rough and tumble podcast streets. So what's good, soldiers? This is Abdullah, and I'm hijacking the mic on this one for a solo episode. So as you guys all know, uh, this season we're in our series on the different aspects of Black love. We really hope you're enjoying the series so far. And Justine, Andres, and I are in the lab cooking up a few more episodes in that series to close out season two of the podcast. So stay tuned in the coming weeks for episodes on a few more aspects of Black love that we have yet to cover. We've had some good episodes for the series so far, but I honestly think that we are saving some of the best for last. So you definitely want to stay tuned and share the podcast with friends. So like we said on previous episodes, during our Black Love series, we sometimes feel the need to respond to things that are happening in the culture somewhat in real time to give our listeners our perspective on it. So that said, I wanted to record a solo episode as a bit of a follow-up to our riff on CRT episode. So we've had several great comments and questions about that episode. So we know that that particular episode made people think and that it provided a lot of value. So the reason for this episode is because in the conversations that people are having about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, about racial conciliation and reconciliation, about social justice, and even the recent flame-ups over uh, critical race theory, and even in many of the conversations that I've had with folks, there's one theme that keeps emerging from our majority culture brothers and sisters that I wanted to address more directly. And that is the work and the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So specifically, um, the I'm going to call it the continuous avalanche of critics of any version of the justice conversation who invoke Dr. King in their plea for everyone to just stop talking about race and to focus on the content of a person's character rather than the color of a person's skin. So right here at the outset, I want to say that the title of the episode of Dr. King as a Messiah of Colorblindness or Critical Race Theory was meant to be provocative. But I also want to say unequivocally that Dr. King was not a critical race theorist as we would typically think about it today. And if you listened to our riff on CRT episode, which I highly recommend you do, you will recall that this is mainly for two reasons. One, because CRT isn't a thing, as we said in the podcast, and as Kimberly Crenshaw herself says, it's a way to describe a thing. And two, that the academic discipline of critical race theory hadn't been invented until well after Dr. King himself was assassinated. But the critique that Dr. King made of history and society would be, by today's standards, derided and even dismissed as critical race theory and as a way to stoke uh, partisanship and scare people. So, I want to address what so many so-called white people, and especially my white brothers and sisters in Christ, do with Dr. King's ideas and his words. And that is particularly and most egregiously that you take them out of context and you use Dr. King as a proof text or a proof reference for ignoring skin color and ethnicity entirely. So when you use Dr. King's words to invoke this idea of colorblindness, you really do a pretty dangerous thing. And that's especially true if you're a Christian or if you profess the name of Christ. 
And so what we do is not only ignore things like cultural differences, but we actually ignore the work that God has done in sovereignly making us the ethnicity that we find ourselves in. And there's a reason that people so blatantly and egregiously want to ignore and even seek to oppose even the modest telling of true history of the United States and even oppose what we have done to African-American, to the Asian, to the Latino, and to the immigrant. So I hope you're tracking with me, listeners, because I really want you to contemplate heavily the things that I'm going to just break down here in this episode. So listeners understand that Dr. King never called for colorblindness. Now, let me run that back. Again, Dr. King did not call for colorblindness. So he and the other figures of the civil rights movements of the 50s and the 60s and 70s were, however, calling for inclusion while criticizing the country for the fact that we as African-Americans were not allowed to be full citizens. So no matter if you were listening to MLK, to Malcolm X, to Rosa Parks, to Stokely Carmichael, Diane Nash, John Lewis, Angela Davis, Fannie Lou Hamer, Huey P. Newton, James Baldwin, Fred Hampton, or anybody else, these folks were all consistent and unified in their calls for inclusion, in their calls for justice, and the elimination of police brutality, and for the United States of America to stop being hypocritical with itself and being hypocritical in the eyes of the world to actually live out, as MLK said, the true meaning of its creed. And remember that in his own time, Dr. King was seen as a radical and was immensely unpopular. And he wasn't just unpopular in the South, he was unpopular in the North as well. He was even stabbed on an organizing trip to Chicago by a Black person for speaking up against racism, against systemic poverty, and opposing the Vietnam War. And Dr. King was also unpopular. Specifically, again, he didn't call for colorblindness. He was unpopular specifically because he called out white supremacy. He called out white hypocrisy, uh, gradualism. He called out the danger that systemic, structural, and institutional racism has on black, brown, poor people, and other bodies, as well as what it does to the very psyche of our nation. MLK himself was never, not for a moment, unclear about that. And so in his own time, Dr. King had a very low public opinion rating. So y'all, let's just go to the receipts for a moment. These are taken from polls during MLK's lifetime, right? So some of you have no doubt heard this before, but to some of you, this will be new information. So new that as you're listening to this, you may even have trouble believing in the accuracy of what I have to say during this episode. But as always, information and the receipts will be in the show notes so you can investigate for yourself. So here are the receipts. According to Gallup, in 1963, King had a 41% positive and a 37% negative rating. The rest of the folks to make up that 100% surveyed either had no comment or were ambivalent. In 1964, there was a 43% positive rating and a 39% negative rating. In 1965, his rating was 45 positive and 45 negative. And in 1966, the last Gallup measure for Dr. King, it was 32% positive and 63% negative. So here's the takeaway. Between 1963 and 1966, in that four-year period, really on average, only 40% or four out of 10 Americans viewed Dr. King favorably. And as the survey stats just illustrated, as the years went on, he was actually declining in positive opinion. So here's one more. According to a Harris poll done in 1968, 
um, before King was assassinated, he was assassinated that year. King had a public disapproval rating of nearly 75%. Now, check this out. In January 2021, YouGov, among others, did a poll and found out that nearly 90% of Americans, the actual number was 89%, but 90% of Americans have a positive opinion of Dr. King today. And of that 90%, 67% of those folks have a very positive opinion of him. So in life, only about four in 10 Americans thought of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. positively, with the low watermark being only about two out of 10 people. Today, fully nine out of 10 people view him favorably. So. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, why is all that important? It's important, in my opinion, because we want to tell the truth about history. And for our podcast, we've, we've often said, well, we, what we offer is nuance. So for those of us who are Christians, this is also important because it's an accurate hermeneutic of MLK. So speaking of accurate hermeneutics, I personally can find no single shred of evidence that suggests that MLK believed in racial reconciliation. So follow me on this, because based on the historical record, it actually seems very clear to me that MLK did, however, believe in racial conciliation. Now, for some of you, when you hear that distinction, you might be like, oh, there he goes again, and you're shutting it off. But that's okay. Hopefully, you stick with me. So as a Christian, Dr. King knew and was well aware of the biblical responsibility and mandate for unity. And as an American who got sovereignly placed on these shores as a descendant of formerly enslaved people, he also knew very well that African Americans and those of European descent have never enjoyed unity. And so for reconciliation to take place, as I've said lots of times before, one has to first be unified or consiled before the broken relationship in order to experience reconciliation. So again, I've mentioned that several times on our podcast, but I'm going to keep saying it because this is not just a semantic difference. Conciliation and reconciliation are profoundly different things. Now, I don't want to belabor that point, but please indulge me as I offer just two illustrations. First one, boy meets girl, and girl and boy fall in love and get married. Boy and girl are now joined together, i.e. consiled, into the covenant and legal institution of marriage. Ultimately, let's say problems develop, and the couple get separated and ultimately divorced. And so with time, with effort, honesty, trust, candor, and a lot of hard work, the couple works things out and eventually gets back together. So then they are now reconciled or reconciled. So for their reconciliation to take place, there has to be a previous condition of unity, i.e. The, the initial marriage. So here's my second illustration. As Christians, we believe that man and woman first existed in a state of perfection and unity with our holy God and our holy creator. But because of this incident where Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that relationship was broken. It was broken specifically because sinful humanity can't dwell with a holy and perfect God. So as a result, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden to wander the earth, and to live out a life apart from the physical and direct presence of God. And so the entirety of the rest of the Bible is essentially, and this is a massive distillation, but it is essentially the, the chronicling of the wanderings of the people later called Israelites until an itinerant Jewish teacher shows up thousands of years later and says that he himself is the fulfillment of God's promise to restore humanity back to the state of communion and back 
to the state of right relationship with himself. And that that reconciliation is not just for people called Hebrews, it's for those of us who are Gentiles also. So, in that way, so says our scriptures, we were dead in sin because of the transgression of Adam and Eve and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So again, conciliation and reconciliation, this is a distinction with a difference. So back to MLK. Now we hear the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. invoked so frequently, but what we only really seem to know or hear about him is that what he led the Montgomery bus boycott. He delivered the, I have a dream speech and he was assassinated. And then he basically ushered in some new era of colorblindness, right? That's what we basically know about it, but that's wrong, but don't take my word for it. So let's talk about the ideas of King in his own words. And this is how I'm going to finish out the rest of the episode. And I want to discuss King in his own words to inform us of two things. One, that the entire assessment, i.e. the critique of American society by all of the groups involved in the civil rights movement is the exact same critique that has been used way back since the days of abolition. So whether we're talking about slavery, Jim Crow, police brutality, forced integration, or busting back in the day uh, about housing incomes or about housing outcomes, about mass incarceration, or the educational and healthcare disparities we experience today, this is not a new argument. And second, that the entire opposition to equity efforts locally and nationally are really kind of a red herring. They have been rooted in the fact that American society is incapable of being honest with itself. I mean, like it can't, it literally, our national psyche literally can't handle looking into the mirror at itself. And it's kind of as if we, if we collectively suffer from this mental health condition called anosonia or the condition of not being able to see oneself accurately. And this isn't like just this generalized being in denial, but it's really the more, again, a more the, the more acute condition of being completely unaware of one's own mental health condition to the extent that one can't perceive that condition accurately. So it's evident by so many illustrations that it would take an entire season of podcasts to illustrate for our country. And again, I say our country, the country that I love. Because I also deeply believe that the country that I love is physically and psychologically incapable of seeing itself accurately. And I believe that there's a profoundly important reason that we refuse to and that we are incapable of seeing ourselves accurately. But I'm going to come back to that reason a little later. But right now, I want to connect the, connect the dot that this is related to the whole conversation on critical race theory, or let's even take out that that term. It's related to the opposition to teaching a more accurate version of history and who we are as Americans. And it's related because I think it shows in context MLK's beliefs about what it meant to be morally consistent and to follow Christ, and that one can, as James Baldwin put it, perpetually criticize the nation they love and the place that God placed them to be. So just so that we're being honest about the public MLK and not just cherry picking some things to prove a point, I want us to look at MLK through four different snapshots. The first is going to be his first public speech to the then new Montgomery Improvement Association that sparked the and led the Montgomery bus boycott. So this is where the country was first introduced to this new civil rights leader back in 1955. Uh, the second is what's been called his prison epistle or um, the letter from the Birmingham jail that King wrote while he was in jail in the spring of 1963. The third is a speech that he delivered to the American Psychological Association in 1967. And the final is uh, the last essay, the last public writing that he wrote before he was assassinated in 1968. 
but was later published by Playboy magazine in 1969. So we have this snapshot from 1955 to 1969 of his public thoughts. And in all of MLK's speeches, what you will see is a consistent but evolutionary thread. And that is the fact that he never once advocated for ignoring the color of someone's skin. He never said that a person's skin color didn't matter or was irrelevant. He only ever advocated for us not using one's skin color to assess the character, the value, the dignity, or the worth of a person. So here's the first one. This is the speech to the, to the Montgomery Improvement Association. And so after some remarks and greetings, the then about 28-year-old MLK starts with these words. And I'm going to read some excerpts here from, from that speech. He says, we are here this evening for serious business. We are here in a general sense because first and foremost, we are American citizens and we are determined to apply our citizenship to the fullness of its meaning. We are here also because of our love for democracy because of our deep-seated belief that democracy transformed from thin paper to thick action is the greatest form of government on earth. But we are here in a specific sense because of the bus situation in Montgomery. He says we are here because we are determined to get the situation corrected. The situation is not at all new. The problem has existed over endless years. For many years now, Negroes, the term of the time, for many years now, Negroes in Montgomery and so many other areas have been inflicted with the paralysis of crippling fears on buses in our community. On so many occasions, Negroes have been intimidated and humiliated and oppressed because of the sheer fact that they were Negroes. I don't have time this evening to go into the history of these numerous cases. Many of them now are lost in the thick fog of oblivion, but at least one stands before us now with glaring dimensions. And then it's here that he just basically outlines the situation specific to Montgomery. But then he goes on to say, and you know, my friends, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, my friends, when people get tired of being plunged into the abyss of humiliation, where they express the bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an Alpine November, there comes a time. And we are not wrong. We are not wrong in what we are doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer that never came down to earth. If we are wrong, justice is a lie. Love has no meaning. And we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And then the speech crescendos with uh, the invocation of Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And so MLK says, we the disinherited of this land who have been oppressed for so long are tired of going through the long night of captivity. And now we are reaching out for the daybreak of freedom and justice and equality. May I say to you, my friends, as I come to a close and just giving some idea of why we are assembled here, that we must keep, and I want to stress this, he says, in all of our doings and all of our deliberations here this evening and all the week and all the while, that whatever we do, we must keep God in the forefront. He says, let us be Christian in all of our actions. But I want to tell you this evening that it's not enough for us to talk about love. Love is one of the pivotal points of the Christian faith. There's another side called justice, and justice is really love and calculation. Justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. So soldiers, that speech is an appeal to justice, to humanity, and to the ethic of love extended to people made in God's image who are, again, the term of the time, Negro, not because of dysfunction, but because of the beautiful diversity of the work of God. So here's the second snapshot. 
And this is the letter from the Birmingham jail. And I'm going to read some excerpts from this too, because I want you to understand that in King's words, he never once assumed, intimated, hinted, or called for some colorblind ignoring. And that letter was a response to Christian clergy who knew he was coming to organize and wrote him a letter asking him to, to not come and to, and to basically you stay out of what's happening over here because they didn't want him stirring up trouble. And these are people who he called in that letter, the Christian moderate, who we would normally, or who we would call today, evangelical Christians. So in response to the letter that was sent to him on the margins of, on the margins of newspapers while he was in jail, he says, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their, thus say the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, he says, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, Again, he's referencing the people who told him to stay home. But your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with the effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. And in the letter, they questioned his wide direct action. So MLK responds to that as well. He says, you may well ask why direct action? Why sit-ins and marches and so forth? Is a negotiation a better path? He says, you're quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and fosters such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. And he goes on to say, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. Again, he's talking about power. He says, we know, let me run that back. He says, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was, quote, well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ears of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, 
but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and your fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, as you see to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel accepts you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title of Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despairs. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. So just stick with me because I want you to understand again, King in context. He goes on to say, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urged people to obey the Supreme Court decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us to consciously break laws. One may well ask, how can you avoid breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I'd be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. So listeners, here again is, is a sentiment that is eerily prophetic, given the quiet and sometimes loud exodus we have now of African Americans and other people of color and justice-minded white Christians from many church spaces. So King says, again, King in context, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. 
let me take note of my other major disappointment. I have been so greatly disappointed by the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions, he says, but I am not, and I am not unmindful of the fact that each of you has taken some significant stands on this issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand on this past Sunday and welcoming Negroes to your worship service on a non-segregated basis. I commend the Catholic leaders of this state for integrating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this, he says, as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, and who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. So, soldiers, this bewildering frustration, as Reverend King calls it, the Reverend Dr. King calls it, this bewildering frustration of the shallow understanding from people of goodwill, especially when they profess the name of Christ and when we are brothers and sisters in the faith, this is not only frustrating. I can personally, me, Abdullah Muhammad, I can personally attest that it is absolutely heartbreaking. The trail of broken friendships and deep heart relationships from Christians who have withdrawn from me and my family because of my demands for honesty, for understanding and justice has been the single greatest tragedy of my adult life. And I've come to call this the slow heartbreak. So, soldiers, thanks so much for bearing with me so far. So, we're going to keep going. We got two more. The next is MLK's speech to the American Psychological Association. Here, here's a 38-year-old MLK who's already won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he gave a talk titled, The Role of the Behavioral Scientist in the Civil Rights Movement. So for those of you who are academically minded and are social scientists like myself um, and people with you know, PhDs and all this other kind of, these other kind of roles, he directly addresses these people as well. And he starts by quoting the preface of a book entitled Applied Psychology from 1965, from his era. And the authors of that book in their preface state, it is the historic mission of the social scientists. The authors of that book in their preface state, it is the historical mission of the social sciences to enable mankind to take possession of society. And King says, it follows that for Negroes who substantially are excluded from society, this science is needed even more desperately than for any other group in the population. He says, for social scientists, the opportunity to serve in a life-giving purpose is a humanist challenge of rare distinction. Negroes, too, are eager for a rendezvous with truth and discovery. We are aware that social scientists, unlike some of their colleagues in the physical sciences, have been spared from the grim feelings of guilt that attended the invention of nuclear weapons and destruction. He says, social scientists in the main are fortunate to be able to extirpate evil, not to invent it. If the Negro needs social sciences for direction and for self-understanding, the white society is even more urgent need, he says. White America needs to understand that it is poisoned to its soul by racism, and the understanding needs to be carefully documented and, consequently, more difficult to reject. The present crisis arises because although it is historically imperative that our society take the next steps to equality, we find ourselves psychologically and socially imprisoned. All too many Americans are horrified not with the conditions of Negro life, but with the product of these conditions, the Negro himself. White America is seeking to keep the walls of segregation substantially intact while the evolution of society and the Negro's desperation is causing them to crumble. The white majority, unprepared and unwilling to accept radical structural change, is resisting and producing chaos 
while complaining that if there were no chaos, orderly change would come. And so throughout the body of the address, King addresses so many things that are still happening today. And again, the writings of King could, could be pulled from yesterday because they ring with, with what he has called previously piercing familiarity. They're so not new, soldiers. They are so not new. And these parallels are just chilling. And so he addresses in this speech things like urban riots and his perspective on them, the Vietnam War, unemployment civil disobedience, political action, all of that. And so as just as an example, as part of the, as an example, as part of his discussion on the urban riots of the 1960s, he says, the policymakers of white society have caused the darkness. They create discrimination. They structured slums and they perpetuate unemployment, ignorance, and poverty. It is incontestable and deplorable that Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes, he says. They are born of the greater crimes of the white society. This is King talking. When we ask Negroes to abide by the law, let us also demand that the white man abide by law in the ghettos. Day in and day out, he violates welfare laws to deprive the poor of their meager allotments. He flagrantly violates building codes and regulations. His police make a mockery of law, and he violates laws on equal employment and education and the provisions for civil services. The slums are the handiwork of a vicious system of white society. Negroes live in them, but do not make them any more than a prisoner makes a prison. Let us say boldly, that if the violations of law by the white man in slums over the years were calculated and compared with the law-breaking of a few days of riots, the hardened criminal would be the white man. These are often difficult things to say, but I have come to see more and more that it is necessary to utter the truth in order to deal with the great problems that we face in our society. So King discusses three roles for social scientists. One, they could study what he calls the problem of Negro leadership and the tendency, he says, of the upwardly mobile Negro to separate from his community, divorce himself from responsibility to it while failing to gain acceptance in the white community. So I would add that this has a whole, I would add that this has created a whole class of socially homeless cultural orphans. The second role for social scientists, is he says that they can study the problem that African-Americans have expended more effort in the quest of the franchise than they have in all other campaigns combined, like sit-ins and marches and demonstrations and so forth. Yet, according to social sciences, yet, according, yet, yet, according to social scientists, King observed that the concrete, according to social scientists, Matthew and Prado in 1966, again, King's contemporaries, and for many others since, King observed that the concrete benefits to be derived from the franchise under conditions that prevail in the South have often been exaggerated. Basically, that the voting is not, that voting is not the key that will unlock the door to racial equality because the concrete measurable payoffs of Negro voting in the South will not be revolutionary. So what he's saying is still true today. We've had the full franchise for 56 years as of the recording of this podcast, and we have made pretty significant social progress, but it is nowhere near the progress that we should have seen in societal outcomes. So the third thing, the third area of study concerns psychological and ideological changes in black folks. So King is saying that it's also worthy of scientific study that given the achievements that we've made, why are black folks still so pessimistic about American society? He said that 
It is fashionable now to be pessimistic that Negroes today are experiencing an inner transformation that is liberating them from the ideological dependence on white majority. And he says, what has penetrated substantially all strata of Negro life is the revolutionary idea that the philosophy and the morals of dominant white society are not holy or sacred, but in all too many respects are degenerate and profane. Again, this is the public king. This is the cute, kind, cuddly, colorblind king talking. Okay. And he even talks about um, internalized inferiority and says that the worst aspect of our oppression was our inability to question and defy the fundamental precepts of larger society. Negroes have been loath in the past to hurl any fundamental challenges because they were coerced and conditioned into thinking within the context of the dominant white ideology. He says this is changing and new radical trends are appearing in Negro thought and he goes on. And so, and I'm almost done with this one. And so he talks about also about civil disobedience. And so as I record this, we have had, we had a whole summer full of public demonstrations in opposition to police brutality. We've had, um, you know, just things like Me Too demonstrations, and we've had lots of uprising of marginalized people. And so of civil disobedience, King says, I believe we will have to find the militant middle. He says the militant middle between riots on the one hand and weak and timid supplication for justice on the other hand. That middle ground, I believe, is civil disobedience. It can be aggressive, but nonviolent. It can dislocate, but not destroy. The specific planning will take some study and analysis to avoid mistakes when it was employed in the past on too small a scale and sustained too briefly. Civil disobedience can restore. Let me run that back. He says civil disobedience can restore Negro white unity. There have been some very important sane white voices, even during the most desperate moments of the riots. One reason is that the urban crisis intersects the Negro crisis in the city. He says, and this is important, many white decision makers may care little about saving Negroes, but they must care about saving their cities. The vast majority of production is created in cities, and most white Americans live in them. The suburbs to which they flee cannot exist detached from cities. Hence, powerful white elements have goals that merge with ours. This is King talking. Thus, it may well be that our world is in dire need of a new organization. And here's kind of comical. He kind of goes there, but he calls it the International Association of the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. Men and women should be as maladjusted as the prophet Amos, who in the midst of the injustices of his day, could cry out in words that echo across the centuries. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Or as maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who in the midst of his vacillations, finally came to see that this nation could not survive half slave and half free. Or as maladjusted as Thomas Jefferson, who in the midst of an age amazingly adjusted to slavery could scratch across the pages of history, words lifted to cosmic proportions. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And through such creative maladjustment, we may be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. And so he concludes that speech by saying, I have not lost hope. I must confess that these have been very difficult days for me personally. And these have been difficult days for every civil rights leader, for every lover of justice and peace. Now, here's the final snapshot of Dr. King. This essay was written by him in early 1968 before he was assassinated. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, published posthumously 
nearly a year later in January 1969. So Dr. King starts by kind of rhetorically asking readers, why is the issue of equality still so far from solution in America, a nation that professes itself to be democratic, inventive, hospitable to new ideas, rich, productive, and awesomely powerful? And he says this, whenever I'm asked my opinion of the current state of the civil rights movement, I'm forced to pause. It is not easy to describe a crisis so profound that it has caused the most powerful nation on the world to stagger in confusion and bewilderment. Today's problems, he says, are so acute because of the tragic evasions and defaults of several centuries have accumulated to disastrous proportions. The luxury of a leisurely approach to urgent solutions, i.e. the ease of gradualism, was forfeited by ignoring the issues for too long. The nation waited until the black man was explosive with fury before stirring itself even to partial concern. Confronted now with the interrelated problems of war, inflation, urban decay, white backlash, and a climate of violence, it is now forced to address itself to race relations and poverty, and it is tragically unprepared. What might once have been a series of separate problems now merge into a social crisis of almost stupefying complexity. Again, this is MLK. I am not sad, he says, that Black Americans are rebelling. This was not only inevitable, but eminently desirable. Without this magnificent ferment among Negroes, the old evasions and procrastinations would have continued indefinitely. Black men have slammed the door shut on a past of deadening passivity. Yet, despite the widening of our stride, history is racing forward so rapidly that the Negroes inherited and imposed disadvantages slow him down to an infuriating crawl. Lack of education, the dislocations of recent urbanization, and the hardening of white resistance loom as such tormenting roadblocks that the goal sometimes appears not as a fixed point in the future, but as a receding point never to be reached. Justice for Black people, he says, will not flow into society merely from court decisions, nor from fountains of political oratory nor will a few broken changes quell the tempestuous yearnings of millions of disadvantaged Black people. White America must recognize that justice for Black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. Let me run that back. White America must recognize that justice for Black people, and I would insert other marginalized folks, cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. The comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. Yet, the largest part of white America is still poisoned by racism, which is as native to our soil as pine trees, as sagebrush and buffalo grass. Equally native to us is the concept that gross exploitation of the Negro is acceptable, if not commendable. Many whites who concede that Negroes should have access to public facilities and the untrammeled right to vote cannot understand that we do not intend to remain in the basement of the economic structure. They cannot understand why a porter or a housemaid would dare dream of a day when his work will be more useful, more remunerative, and a pathway to rising opportunity. This comprehension is a heavy burden in our efforts to win white allies for the long struggle. The Negro today cannot escape from his ghetto in the way that Irish, Italian, Jewish, and Polish immigrants escaped from their ghettos 50 years ago. New methods of escape must be found. And one of these roads to escape will be a more equitable sharing of political power between Negroes and whites. King says integration is meaningless without the sharing of power. 
He says, when I speak of integration, I don't mean a romantic mixing of colors, i.e. he's not speaking of colorblindness. He says, I mean the real sharing of power and responsibility. We will eventually achieve this, but it is going to be much more difficult for us than for any other minority. We will achieve this, but it is going to be more difficult for us than for any other minority. After all, no minority has been so constantly, brutally, and deliberately exploited. But because of this very exploitation, Negroes bring a special spiritual and moral contribution to American life, a contribution without which America could not survive. And speaking about American foreign policy and how we treat other nations of the world, Dr. King says this. He says, men of the white West, whether or not they like it, have grown up in a racist culture, and their thinking is colored by that fact. They have been fed on a false mythology and tradition that blinds them to the aspirations and talents of other men. And then he says, they don't really respect anyone who is not white, but we simply cannot have peace in a world without mutual respect. I honestly feel that a man without racial blinders, or even better, a man with personal experience of racial discrimination, would be in a much better position to make policy decisions and to conduct negotiations with the underprivileged and emerging nations of the world than would an Eisenhower or Dulles. Referring to John Foster Dulles, President Eisenhower's Secretary of State, and by extension, any other politician who comes from a privileged and majority culture. He says that basically, a man without these racial binders would be in a much better position to make policy decisions and, and to conduct negotiations with underprivileged and emerging nations. So, listeners, I know that was a lot of excerpts, but these excerpts are part of the Dr. King that I know. This is the Dr. King that I've studied. This is the one that I've researched and whose hope in the face of disappointment and disillusionment honestly is one that we should all strive to emulate because I believe it comes from the very heart of God. So, y'all, I mentioned earlier that as a nation, we were psychologically incapable of seeing ourselves accurately and, and the mental health disorder and whatnot. And so, and that I would return to the reasons why. So here's my reasons why. I think that I think that we are unable to see ourselves accurately. And in particular, majority culture and the majority of white America is incapable of seeing themselves and our country accurately because if they did. And if you're white, if you're a person who has come to be called white, like James Baldwin says, I don't know you personally, but I know you historically. And so I'm talking about the thing, the political social entity that has come to be called white that has infected the minds, hearts, and psyches of people of European descent. Okay. So don't hear what I'm not saying, but I think that majority culture is incapable of seeing our country accurately because if you did, you would morally short circuit. If you were truly faced with the horror, with the terror, with the oppression, with the hypocrisy and the outright lies that broader America has told, they've reinforced, and that many of you have come to believe in order to self-justify that we are the greatest nation on the planet. I just, I just think you're, that, 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 that psyche literally can't hold the truth. Now, I didn't invent that. This isn't a new idea. A lot of people have said that throughout time in history. So, for example, that was even one of James Baldwin's and Malcolm X's critiques of white America. And some people have believed that the psyche of white America was damaged specifically because they're white. And specifically because white people are inherently evil. 
Some folks believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that people of European descent who've come to be called white are inherently evil. I do believe, though, that one of the greatest tragedies in humanity is actually what had to be done to those who've come to be called white and what's done to their psyche to believe in its own or their own or your own supremacy. That's a massive trauma. And much like what has been done to people of color, that's a trauma that can never be underestimated, in my opinion. So the reason why majority culture can't really go there with itself is simply because we are all, all of us, regardless of ethnicity or so-called race, we are all in our essence moral creatures, and we are all made in the image of God. And that image and that morality has to be numbed and deadened in order to create and perpetuate oppression. So I fundamentally believe that we are all made in the image of God. If you don't believe that, that's okay. I still do. But I also fully recognize, listeners, your ability, if you don't believe that, to choose for yourself. So having said that, if you are listening to this podcast and you are not a religious person or you are someone who does not believe in a God or is not a theist or any of those kinds of things, I believe that you would still stipulate that we as humans are inherently moral creatures. So regardless of one's theistic perspective, my larger point of our inherent morality still stands. And as I said, that morality has to be numbed in order to create oppression on such a devastatingly mass scale. So once the true nature of that oppression is brought back to life, the reminder of the eternal and cosmic morality of God himself is brought back to life with it. And with that psychological resurrection comes the idea that one must, they must do everything in their power to repent, to acknowledge, and to repair the damage that has been done. That's what's actually meant by truth and reconciliation, or I would say more accurately, conciliation. That's what that really means. And that's what atonement really means. So we can't go there because of what that means. So as Christians, we are, we're taught that we are to be repairers of the breach, right? And so on this side of eternity, what bigger breach in humanity has there been than the chasm-creating breach of white cultural supremacy and white as normal and white as the ultimate form of humanity? Like what bigger breach has there been? I mean, this idea has literally wrought havoc around the globe and has infected societies, economics, and laws for the better part of a millennium. And King himself once famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think MLK was absolutely right. And the only thing that gives me hope and lets me continue to do the work that I do is the idea that one day our nation will truly come to an understanding of our common and equal human dignity and the equality of all people. So, soldiers, I hope you've seen through this episode. I know there was lots and lots of excerpts and the links will be in the show notes for the entirety of those speeches and, the, and those writings. But I know a lot of you have never read those and will likely never read them. So I wanted to, I wanted to read you some of these in context. But I hope you've seen through this episode that any allusions or illusions of colorblindness that have been ascribed to Dr. King are completely false. And they actually reflect a pretty significant ignorance and misunderstanding as to who the Reverend Doctor was, what he believed, and what he stood for. So, soldiers, this entire episode was to accomplish one single purpose, and that is to show you 
that in our desire to rewrite and reinterpret history, we have done ourselves a profound disservice. So many folks have been cherry picking and decontextualizing the work of people who are trying to show us the way forward. And they're doing so really in an effort to stoke partisanship and to stoke hatred and to honestly just to win elections, but to also justify their own supremacy and to continue to advocate for positions that do their best to keep non-white people in our place. Instead, what we should have been doing all along is making an appeal to justice, an appeal to humanity, and to the ethic of love extended to people made in God's image and who are of a descent other than European. And they're not of that descent other than European because of some dysfunctional deficiency, but because of the beautiful and intentional diversity of the work of the Lord and the work of the almighty God of the universe. So y'all, it is my sincere hope that you got some value from this episode. Y'all know me. Sometimes I kind of go off on a thing and go off on a rant, but this was not a rant. This was something that I feel like we really needed to hear and think about and process and learn and understand. So hit me up on social media at that dudilla or on our show's page or via email. The links are all in the show notes. Hit me up. Let me know what you thought about this episode. Let me know if you have any questions, all that. So soldiers, thanks so much for rocking with me on this episode. Join us again next time when we will have Justine and Andres back on the mic and a guest. So y'all are going to want to stay tuned. So until next time, y'all, and I mean this, y'all keep the faith. Peace. Mm-hmm.